Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I was a Democrat. I was a Republican. Still a liberal. I'm still a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends. We are friends. How are you doing, Karen? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm Yeah. We've had just beautiful fall weather here, so I'm not going to complain. Actually, I've heard you complain for the last week about all the rain. Today, we have beautiful fall weather, so I'm not going to complain. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Well, let's just jump in, shall we? Fine. All right. Amid all the Kavanaugh controversy, we decided that we're going to talk about some past SCOTUS issues. So how often has the Senate rejected a president's nominee to the Supreme Court? What have been the most common reasons for rejection? And of the 159 nominations for Supreme Court justice that presidents have submitted to the Senate for confirmation, the Senate has rejected only 12. The first rejection was Washington's nomination of John Rutledge to be Chief Justice in 1795. The last was Reagan's nominee for Associate Justice, Robert H. Bork, in 1987. Now, as we go into this, remember, we're not talking about people who have declined or withdrawn, just those who've been rejected by the Senate. And here are some general facts in the in addition to rejecting nominees, the Senate has failed to approve 24 additional nominees by postponing confirmation, taking no action, or by acting in ways that have encouraged nominees to withdraw from consideration. If you remember Harriet Myers in 2005, they basically just kept rolling their eyes at her in the committee and she said, well, I'm probably not going to make this, so I just withdraw. Now, some stats, half of the failed nominations were in a president's final year in office. And one-third failed appointments were nominated by presidents who were not elected, but obtained the office in alternate ways, like Tyler. He went down to uh, that judge and said, make me president. Right, right. Or Ford, or who Ford. was never elected to anything. Right. Yeah. But, I, but most of these are vice presidents, so, or mm -hmm. vice presidents who became president. Right. Now, political science professor P.S. Ruckman, before his granddaddy started a circus, has <laughs> argued that in critical instances in which a significant shift in the court's makeup has been predicted, nominees have been rejected nearly as many times as confirmed. When nominations have not been considered critical, confirmation has been 12 times more likely. That's where you have a conservative coming in for a conservative or a liberal coming in for a liberal. Right. Now, through all this time, political currents have really ebbed and flowed. Following a pretty uneventful first 20 years of Senate confirmations, in which all but one of 19 nominees were approved pretty quickly, the confirmation process went through a turbulent 80 years, during which the Senate rejected more than one-fourth nominees. Nomination rejections peaked during the Civil War years. After the war, and by 1910, confirmation actually rose again to almost 100%. 
During Reconstruction, Synod opposition to nominees really became politically reputable um, because justices were understood to be politically motivated in their rulings, and senators believed that they had the right and the responsibility to vote to ensure political reliability and also geographical diversity. And this is kind of interesting, but it was actually George Washington who established a long-lasting precedent of working to achieve a more geographically balanced Supreme Court. You don't really hear anything about that anymore. That's no, not really an issue. Right. From 1894 to 1968, only one nominee was rejected, and that was President Hoover's nominee, Judge John J. Parker. Always makes me think of Spider-Man, Peter Parker. See, I always think of Judge John J. Jingleheimer Schmidt. La, 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 da, da, da. (laughs) Okay, anyway. Beginning in 1968, confirmation battles began again as three nominees were rejected between 68 and 70. In 1987, due to an especially politically charged atmosphere, nominee Judge Bork was rejected. The vote tension was really heightened in that particular case because the voting behavior of the resigning justice had determined a number of important 5-4 decisions. And we're kind of seeing that situation now. A 2008 study noted that current trends reflect a nominee's ideological compatibility with that of senators, and that now takes precedence over all other factors with regard to their confirmation, which is really, really discouraging. Yeah, so we have turned it into a political position. Well, Karen, let's talk about a stolen seat, and it's not Merrick Garland. The first stolen seat on the court. At the end of John Quincy Adams' presidency, Andrew Jackson had been elected as the next president, and he nominated John Crittenden. Now, the Jackson supporters basically did not want Adams to be able to appoint a Supreme Court justice. So they passed a resolution that essentially says it was, and the word they used, inexpedient to consider this justice at that particular moment. And so they did not vote one way or another. He just didn't come up and Jackson came in, assumed the presidency, and he is the one who appointed a justice. Huh. So that was kind of the first stolen seat. The difference was we had a president who had already been elected as opposed to a lame duck president. Right. Now, outright rejections of Supreme Court nominees are pretty rare in our history, although they do happen. And there are really five red flags that senators have raised that derail Supreme Court nominations. Right. And these, by red flag, we're kind of saying that they use these as excuses. Right? right. These are what they use. Right. The first red flag is that the nominee's record might be hiding something. So Herbert Hoover's nominee, John Parker, is one example of this. The Parker case um, is also an example of how interest groups can doom a Supreme Court nominee's chances at confirmation, because a lot of times they'll dig up some controversial statements that were made in the nominee's past, and they can bring national attention to those matters. So general resentment of Hoover, who was really blamed for the Great Depression, was at play with Parker, as well as the, quote, deep controversy of liberalism versus conservatism, unquote, 
In that atmosphere, outside groups such as Labor and the NAACP played a key role in finding skeletons in Parker's closet. The work of these outside interest groups ended up killing Parker's confirmation. Here's another red flag. The nominee might not be qualified. Nixon just had fits trying to get people on the Supreme Court, and his nominees, Carswell and Hainsworth, were two examples of this justification. Criticism of Nixon's Southern strategy was also at play in the nomination rejections. Critics believe that Nixon picked Southern judges on purpose to appease Southern voters. Now, Hainsworth was alleged to have made court decisions favoring segregation and of being anti-labor. He was also accused of ruling in cases in which he had a financial interest, all that was never proven. Now, for Carswell, again, his past statements relating to civil rights helped doom his chances. For example, in a 48 speech, he said segregation of the races is proper and the only practical and correct way of life. Okay, 1948, isn't that around the same time that there was that commission report that we talked about in um, the History of Immigration episode? In the Immigration that, Series, yes. Right, that created so much controversy. Wasn't it around that time yeah. period? I think that that's when a lot of academia was looking at, um, they were kind of utilizing a lot of like, one race is better than the other from a biological perspective thing that shifted right. a lot of this. And it, it's really discouraging how it made its way into policy for sure. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about that, go back to the immigration series, if you haven't heard it and listen to that and you can learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to Carswell, his record wasn't the only problem. The senators also felt that Nixon weighed his political strategy over their qualifications. The rejection actually reflected a widespread conviction that Carswell simply did not measure up to the stature of men the senators wanted to see added to the Supreme Court. Because remember, at that time, a woman had not been put on the Supreme Court right. yet. Right. That kind of grated on me as you read that. I was like, or women. <laughs> well, I no, I didn't correct myself because at that point there had been no women. Right, right. And even many Southerners felt insulted that Nixon had chosen Carswell to represent them. And social issues also play a huge part in who gets through and who doesn't. In Nixon's case, it's interesting to note that after these two failed nominations, the Senate confirmed his third nominee, Harry Blackman, 94 to 0, Karen. Wow. 94 to 0. And guess what he would go to write, Karen? You know this one. Right. He wrote the majority opinion in Roe versus Wade. Yes, he did. So Nixon gave us Roe v. Wade. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting little tidbit there. Now, the next red flag is the nominees' politics are wrong. The partisan polarization of the confirmation process is often seen as reaching a whole new stage back in 1987. Then... Just like now, a swing vote was up for grabs. After Ronald Reagan nominated Robert Bork to the seat, Senator Ted Kennedy seized the narrative and painted Bork as too conservative for the Senate, which actually had gone Democratic during the 1986 midterms. 
The gist of Kennedy's argument was that Bork's view of the world was out of step with the rest of Washington and the country. In an eerily familiar speech, which I was not around back then to hear that, or at least I was a little little itty bitty girl, um, but I've still heard speeches like this recently, um, Kennedy said, Robert Bork's America is a land which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. School children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censored at the whim of government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. Now, only a couple of those things have really kind of started to appear. I think the war on drugs kind of brought the police part right. into play, but everything else really is not an issue anymore. And we've had oh no, we've Republicans we've around, so. heard a lot of talk about back alley abortions and right. I mean, fear driven narratives yeah, right. really are big business. They are so. That speech, bolstered by Bork's long paper trail of conservative opinions, and and, his... and Bork was just one goofy looking dude, man. <laughs> and his I mean, name was Bork. His name was Bork. Bork. But I mean, he was just a strange looking guy. That's rather judgmental of you. No, he just uh, he <laughs> he was just a weird looking guy. I just can't see him being on the Supreme Court. Well, sit, his... sitting next to my girl Ruth. I, well, I mean, you know, no one can really sit no. next to Ruth, in your opinion. No, Jeez. no. Yeah. Um, it didn't really help that he, his role in the Saturday Night Massacre, that didn't help his case either. Um, I think we should do, I'd like to do an episode on that. I'm making a public plea. Because well, you, every time I say I want to do an episode on something, you say... Yeah, we'll do that, and then the next week we're doing something else. So, now I'm putting had, it on I the had, record. Okay, no, I had a script ready for this week, and you wanted to change it. So, that's not always me. It's usually me, because I usually write the script. <laughs> well, so. yeah. yeah, I guess he who writes the scripts gets a say in <laughs> what we're doing. But, but um. With the Saturday Night Massacre, I think it might be a good time to talk about that after the Russia investigation is over. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that would be interesting. A lot of Bork's stuff really galvanized a lot of the liberal interest groups. Then, just like now, the future of Roe v. Wade was seen as, as at stake. It was revealed that Bork had characterized that case as unconstitutional and a serious and wholly unjustifiable judicial usurpation of state legislative authority. Nice word. You added that word. Yeah. The Senate Democrats' approach to Bork's confirmation shifted from questions of legal ability and ethical fitness to a confrontation over ideology. That's what we're seeing now, and it's really, really discouraging. Oh, yeah. Bork became a political liability, and by the time his nomination came to a vote, his rejection was seen as a foregone conclusion. After Bork... Nominees would aim to get through confirmation hearings without revealing very much about what they really believe. Yeah, I like when they're at the Senate confirmation hearings and they're just like, oh, yeah, no comment. 
Right. They're always like, as justices before me have said. Yeah. Or I'm they'll not say, answering that question. I'm not comfortable talking about a hypothetical. Right. Well, I believe in precedent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. They all yeah, believe I mean, in just... precedent. They all believe in precedent. Right. Well, the thing is, I mean, the confirmation hearings at this point are pointless. It's political theater for the opposing. And I don't even know why we have nine now, because every single one of them believes so deeply in precedent. (laughs) Yeah. That we could just have one little clerk go back and say, well, what is precedent on this? Well, it's just, it's so funny. I mean, you can basically just say, they could have somebody sit in for them and say what they're supposed to say. Yeah. Um, It's this aversion to like really deeper examination that causes all those non-answers that we see during the confirmation process. That's, that's, That's the reason why. Court researcher David Yaloff explained that you don't answer questions directly. It's important to hide behind the language. So... After Bork's failure, President Reagan nominated Douglas Ginsburg. (laughs) That would have gotten somewhat confusing. A judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. But Ginsburg withdrew his nomination after it was revealed that he smoked the devil weed as a law professor. Not the devil's lettuce. Hippie. I know. Apparently he did, in fact, inhale. He Um, did not say no. No, he did not. Um, And that put him at odds with the administration's just say no campaign, (laughs) obviously. And it was after that, that Reagan nominated Anthony Kennedy. You know, that just seems, just think about now they're going, you know, with the Kavanaugh thing, they're going back all this time on what he did in high school. But now, then they were going back. Did you ever smoke marijuana? Right. It's crazy, like the cultural shifts and yeah. how that affects everything. You know that that justice now is like, seriously, <laughs> right. or, you know, as he has seen all this play out, you know, he had to be like, oh, come on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And I can never be on the Supreme Court if they haven't changed that ruling. I could. I know. See, and I don't think you're, uh, I don't think you're fit for it, but. Let's go with four. Is well, you know no- what they say about opinions. Yes. And what they're like. Well, so. let's just go with number four. And here's where you couldn't get past, Karen, is that the nominee raises ethical concerns. Huh. Now, in certain cases, the information that damaged the credibility of nominees had little to do with their judicial past. And, and the, everything to do with the president who nominated them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the run-up to the 1968 presidential election, President Lyndon B. Johnson nominated Associate... <laughs> Jumbo. Associate. Jumbo Johnson. He nominated Abe Fortas to replace retiring Earl Warren as Chief Justice. Now, during the hearings, it was reported that Forrest had accepted a teaching gig at American University's law school that came with a privately funded stipend of $15,000, equivalent to 40% of a salary on the bench, donated by five big businessmen who may someday have matters before the court. He was also scrutinized for accepting a $20,000 consulting gig with the family foundation of Lewis Wolfson. Who ah. had been indicted on securities fraud. He was oh, the original the yeah. original Wolf of Wall Street. 
See? That was good. <laughs> that was good. He also faced the appearance of conflict of interest in terms of the separation of powers. He remained a close advisor to LBJ while on the bench. Yeah, he did. Now I don't for, know why that I don't know what that means. But. <laughs> I don't know. You just it's an LBJ thing. You have to make an innuendo thing, it, right? Now yeah. Fortas is considered to be the first SCOTUS nominee to be blocked by a filibuster. After a vote to end the debate came up short, LBJ <laughs> withdrew the nomination at Fortas's request. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Fortis wasn't the only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like doing a podcast with a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> Just keep going. He stayed on the court as an associate justice in an attempt to vindicate myself, but his conflicts of interest created such a cloud over him, he resigned in May of 69. I'm picturing Eeyore, you know, with like yeah. the little black cloud that came okay all right the fifth red flag is that it's presidential election year a new method of pushing against confirmation was introduced in 2016 when merrick garland the chief justice of the u.s court of appeals for the district of columbia became barack obama's nominee to replace the late antonin scalia less than a year before a presidential election Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did not schedule hearings for Garland because, as he put it, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. In this estimation, McConnell relied on public ignorance because history did not actually back up his supposition. And you can really never go wrong relying on public ignorance. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I, of all the truly of all the people, I think there are two people that have destroyed politics in the United States more than any two people. I think it's Newt Gingrich and Mitch McConnell. And you could you could point to some Democrats, I'm sure. But no, but I don't I don't think objectively no two people have done as much damage to our democracy as Mitch McConnell or Newt Gingrich. I think that they have both really added to partisanship. Um, that's, I, I would have to say that they've very much increased that and, and they've really damaged the fabric of conservatism as a, a sharpening tool with, to the other side, you know, both sides need each other to make them better and uh, when we demonize the other side, then we're not refining each other at all. And we're well, not getting anything done. McConnell, you know, started the whole thing. I mean, truly, Gingrich and Clinton had their things and Gingrich um, started the whole, you know, when it all costs thing. And then Mc McConnell came in truly with it's something that we've never seen the likes of in history when he decided that he would just filibuster everything obama put forward right. i mean it was just it's it see this is where i do not like to get into well it's both sides because right. in this I'm, instance it was not it i mean it truly was not if you look at what happened if you want to you know it's easy to say it's just both sides it really wasn't i mean it, the mcconnell that's what started this thing has snowballed so badly um, but okay there's my there's my opinion 
on McConnell. Well, McConnell also looks like somebody who would foreclose on an orphanage. So I don't like that. I I judge people by their appearances. Bork, I didn't like, so I was glad he was <laughs> off. McConnell looks like a turtle. He's gone. So I'm sorry. I digress. Oh, that's okay. I love being put on the spot. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> I know. Well, I know that you have your feelings on what I probably <laughs> shouldn't have gone down that road. <laughs> it's okay. I just, I think, I really, I wouldn't say it's particular people um, from the left. I think it is more the tribalism of the left that has been really, really damaging to democracy and to the unity of the nation. So I think it's more some principles than it is people um, from the left. So, I mean, I agree that um, we shouldn't just be, you know, a lot of people could automatically say oh harry reed or oh chuck schumer or oh whatever but i really i would have to look at everything and everything that was opposed and and i can't really say that i know what talk radio has told me but i don't trust that so i i have much more problem with um ideology than i do with people but um that's that's my take on that going back before you rabbit trailed on me um Going back to what Mitch McConnell said and how it is wrong, research shows that about one third of U.S. presidents have nominated jurists to the Supreme Court and had those nominations accepted. Fourteen presidents putting forward 21 justices. Of those, six presidents got nominees through as lame ducks. Also, for the... Uh, constitutionalists on the right side of the aisle, the Constitution doesn't actually involve the people in selecting justices. Just the president to nominate people to the Supreme Court with the advice and consent of the Senate. Yeah, and if you if you take the approach that a president can't nominate in the last year, why don't you just cut his term down to three years? You know, if you say, well, no, new, you know, there's another election coming up. We're not going to do anything till we decide until we see who the next president's going to be. Well, then you're just electing a president for three years. You know, that's kind of my I mean, if the country, if a war decision has to be made, the person in the White House has to make that decision. Right. So they're president. So let's look at some controversial justices that have made it in shall we all right we we shall we shall start with lewis brandies now what do you what do you think lewis was special for karen well i'm gonna let you tell us chuck <laughs> he was nominated in a very difficult time he was by woodrow wilson in 1916 mm -hmm. and he was a very very well-known lawyer he had a well-known long history as a legal advocate for social reform. And he had successfully argued a bunch of cases before the Supreme Court. Um, he came up with the Brandy's brief and it was very, very popular <laughs> and um, supportive and supportive. Yes, <laughs> it was actually, it was a very analytical and scientific approach to court presentations. Right. And Which, it's still because used of his, today because of his religion and that's probably why um, that tends to be the approach that they take a lot. So they do. Now, while some championed his nominations, others 
including former President William Howard Taft, who would later serve with him on the court, attacked him as a muckraker and a radical. In an age where anti-Semitic rhetoric was prevalent, Brandy's religion itself played a huge part in opposition to his nomination. And this was the first time that they ever held public confirmation hearings. See, I never realized that confirmation hearings were born out of intolerance to Jews. Yeah. Like that is that is fascinating that we're still doing something today that was created by anti-Semitism. That, right. oh, that hurts my heart. They drug this process out for four months. It's the wow. longest confirmation in history up to that point. Wow. Now, eventually he was confirmed in a 47 to 22 vote, and he became the first Jewish Supreme Court justice. <sighs> that's that's so discouraging. All right. Well, well that second... was back in 1916. And now right. we have we have my girl Ruth on the bench. I know. Representing. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, the next one we have is Clarence Thomas. And, you know, with all of the Kavanaugh stuff, Clarence Thomas is over there like, don't look my way, man. <laughs> like, oh, you know, when this came up, he was like, oh, man. Right. Yeah. This when, couldn't have been like a betting scandal yeah, or something like why that. This? You know? yes, Cruelty right. to his dog, or he couldn't have done like a Mitt Romney and put the dog on the roof of the car. Oh, same word. Well, when Thurgood Marshall, the first African American justice, retired from the court in 1991, President George Herbert Walker Bush nominated another black jurist, Clarence Thomas, to replace him. Yeah, that wasn't playing identity politics at all. <laughs> Not at all. You know what, though? I'm I'm going to just go back to Mitt Romney for a minute and that whole thing about him putting a dog on the top of the car. Okay. When mm -hmm. you were a kid, how many times did you get thrown in the back of a pickup truck to go somewhere? Uh, right. I mean, I think that most <laughs> people would agree that if given the opportunity again to vote for Mitt Romney or to speak against Mitt Romney, they may make another choice. No, I just mean when that was going on, I just thought to myself, when he was putting that dog on the roof, mm -hmm. he actually secured that dog much more than my uncle secured me when he would right. drive it was me like 40 in miles and, in a pickup truck. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying like a lot of the demonization of Mitt Romney, I think a lot of people, even John Stewart, I think came out and said yeah we need to not do that anymore because look what we have now um i don't well, know that, that was a rabbit hole but i always thought that the of the hypocrisy of that of you know our parents would just tell us yeah we're going here jump in the back of the pickup truck right or the station wagon without any yeah, seat belts. no seat belts or anything <laughs> yeah, yeah right right well um getting back to clarence thomas Unlike the more liberal Marshall, who had successfully argued the landmark anti-segregation case, Brown versus Board of Education, Thomas had been kind of a champion for conservative views, and he voiced his opposition to affirmative action and criticized the court's decision in Roe v. Wade. Eager to avoid the mistakes made by the Reagan administration during the Bork confirmation, the Bush White House mounted a very strong defense against Thomas's detractors. They assized his improbable rise from an impoverished George childhood. 
because I'm, you know what i'm not even gonna go with the jerks joke there <laughs> because because that's one i use all the time growing up in the in the ghetto that i did <laughs> but well, go ahead but i mean he actually could say i grew up a a poor black child a like poor he, black child <laughs> yeah he was able to do that okay thomas's nomination made it out of committee but just three days before the scheduled full senate vote news leaked of sexual harassment accusations made by oh. law professor Anita Hill, who had previously worked with Thomas at both the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Department of Education. You know, now think about this, though. If I, you know, we don't know what really took place there, mm -hmm. but how crazy would you be to do some sexual harassment at the EEOC? Well, that would be a bold move. For sure. That would be a very bold move, yes. I found but it who would you complain to? I, <laughs> I found it very interesting that Anita Hill actually um, was a professor at Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma, which is a notoriously conservative school. So it's kind of interesting that um, a lot of people like to blame motive but she did not fit the typical narrative when it came to that. Um, right. She very much was kind of on an island in and of herself. Like she, a lot, you know, she didn't really fit a lot of the mold that people like to try to put people in that make right. accusations. Yeah, she was a. She was a. I. I, I feel a little sorry for her, actually. The Just, go, ahead. go ahead. No, just the way that she was. I, I think everybody acknowledges now that she was she was treated pretty poorly. Yes, she really was. That. She was. Um, well, the nomination was sent back to the Judiciary Committee for further review. And during three days of nationally televised hearings, because I think that was right when we started with the cable news, 24 hour news networks. It was. Hill presented a litany of accusations while Thomas denied all of them, chalking the controversy up in part to race, famously decrying the attacks as a high tech lynching. Thomas was eventually confirmed by a 5248 vote, the narrowest margin in over a hundred years. But wasn't the Senate the, the what was the Senate? Were they there were sixty Democrats in the Senate at the time? Okay. Okay. See, so I mean, yeah, that... it wasn't Republicans that pushed that through, right? And that's, and you have to remember, back at that time, it was not unusual at all. You know, we didn't have this, um, just these blood fights, right? That, and the I partisan, mean, that got purely partisan right. votes, right? Yeah, just straight party line votes, right? So that's so we have today, yes. And but I think that I think that they've learned that we've learned a little bit because with what we have going on now, except for our president, most people have been fairly sensitive in the way that they talk about the accusers. You know what I mean? As opposed to Anita Hill, she got treated very roughly. Mm -hmm. And I think people have been a little bit more sensitive to um, to. Well, I think a lot of people are afraid. I think that they don't want any skeletons coming up in their closets. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, now, you know, they have the Internet and they have Facebook. I mean, I would hate right. that. I, I would not. I could not be. I couldn't run for anything. Right. <laughs> no, you, know? you would not be able to. Um, <laughs> but I, 
I don't know. I have a lot of opinions about all of that. And I unleashed a lot of them on you today. And I will be unleashing them in future episodes, I'm sure. So They're not pretty. They're <laughs> not pretty opinions. They're not popular, that's for sure. Well, let's go to one that I know that you will like, Karen, because you love a bargain. <laughs> wow, really? You do. I know you no. do. I Every time I talk to you, you tell me what a good deal you got at this thrift store on this. or the, Oh, you're going there with me. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> and you're okay. supposed to be like all tolerant and all that stuff, huh? That was not anything more than me knowing your shopping habits, Karen. Huh. Okay. You Hold on. How many boxes full of books did you buy? Can All I right. I bought you? a lot of books. I was bragging because now I'm going to be smarter than you, even smarter like than I already am. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. And how much were you taunting me with the price of those books? I got them for like 10 for a dollar. Yeah. So you love a bargain. <sighs> I do. I also love free food so yes you do <laughs> i mean i go to costco and i like eat dinner with samples so they have a little picture of you please if you see this woman you know the other day they had an entire pig in the freezer section at costco yeah an entire pig right. so i mean if they have samples of that like pork, it's very disappointing because I get all excited because I see everybody <laughs> like gathering around the sample thing and I'm like, yes, samples. And then it's like pork or pepperoni or something. And I'm just like, dang it, because I get all excited and then I can't eat it. I mean, yeah, I could, pork. but it's I don't. Big disappointment. I'm sorry for that, Karen. All right. Anyway, since you offended well, me. I did not mean to offend you. I'm going to have to edit this because now you're, there's going to be people picketing my house and everything oh, else. Oh, nobody's going to picket your house. They know that you're equally offensive, <laughs> to an everyone, equally offending yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be like, hey, uh, can we get in front of you Methodists here? And just can we get between the Methodists and Catholics when we picket your house? But anyway, <laughs> this is a, they got to buy one, get one free judge here, Karen. Okay. In January of 1835, Justice Gabriel Duvall resigned due to old age. Now, Andrew Jackson, coming up on the end of his second term, nominated his friend and ally, Roger Taney. Now, isn't there irony here that Jackson's supporters wouldn't vote on John Quincy Adams' person? Mm -hmm. But at the end of Jackson's, he's got two. Mm -hmm. With just months to fill. Right. You know, so, well, so he nominates Roger Taney to replace Duvall. Taney and Jackson were pals, and not just because Taney had supported Jackson's presidential bid, but because they worked together to dismantle the Second Bank of the United States. But that did not sit well with the Senate, which had previously censured Jackson for abuse of power. So they decided to reject Taney's nomination by a vote of 28 to 18. So that made Taney officially the first would-be justice to get rejected by the Senate. Now, just a few months later, Chief Justice John Marshall decided that he was going to retire from For the earth. <laughs> and he died. <laughs> so now, see, every time somebody dies, you have to giggle. I don't know what's wrong with you. Now they've got two vacant seats and only months left in the White House. And you know what? Some senator didn't, 
senator didn't come out and say, oh, I think the American people should be picking this. No, they let him fill the seats. I, so I, Je- I didn't I didn't realize I was doing a podcast with Eric Cartman. <laughs> yes, you are. Respect my authority. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to be kicked off the air. <laughs> well, anyway, Jackson decides, OK, I can't get Taney in here. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put Pendleton, Philip Pendleton in here to replace the retired Duvall. And the Senate confirmed him. Then Jackson makes a bold move. Oh. He renominates Taney. To replace the Chief Justice Marshall. Wow. And they put him in. Jackson was a bold guy. (laughs) He was a bold guy. Not in a good way. No, not really at all. No. Now this next one I really, really like. This was one of my favorites. Right. I think it's so funny because it's all about titles here. So then we have John Rutledge. In 1789, under the very first president, George Washington, Rutledge was nominated to serve on the young country's first Supreme Court in 1791. Without even having heard a single case, Rutledge decided that he had enough of that, and he resigned so that he could become the chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm not sure that he understands promotions. It's yeah. like if you were the chief justice then of South Carolina, you would get promoted. To, right. But it was actually a, a downward career. Wasn't transition. even a lateral move. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like. I don't think that means what you think it means. (laughs) Exactly. The following year, Rutledge lost his wife. That set off a bout of apparent mental illness. Apparent. (laughs) Apparent. That would persist for the rest of his life. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's it's pretty damn apparent when it lasts your whole life. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't stop Washington from nominating him to the Supreme Court, though, three years later. This time... He was smart, and he gave him the role of chief justice. I wonder if that's when the role of chief justice started. Like, Washington realized that this guy needed, like, the title of chief justice. Hey, you know what we're going to do here? We're going to make you chief justice. (laughs) It was like a joke, you know. Yeah, there was not even a position. chief justice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as and this, it was a recess appointment that he did it in. Right. So he exactly. got the automatic. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to slide you under the radar here. And this was before radar was invented. So Washington <laughs> wouldn't have said that. But he was like, I'm going to side you under the sentries here. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put exactly. you on the bench. Well, I guess Rutledge was OK with that. Since he was chief justice, he went ahead and accepted that. And then he immediately took advantage of the new position and delivered an impassioned speech, which denounced the Jay Treaty with Great Britain. And, and the Jay Treaty was a huge thing. It was a huge military right. and trade treaty with Great Britain. Right. And also, Rutledge suggested that the president should die rather than <laughs> sign the treaty and that he would prefer going to war again over peace with Great Britain. So, yeah, this was just after we'd ended the war with them. So <laughs> Right. So within five days of the Senate coming back into session, <laughs> Rutledge's appointment was completely rejected. And it was on the basis. This, this is the professional opinion of the Senate. Right. The basis for rejection was he's a crazy <laughs> alcoholic who had no business in the country's highest court. Yeah. Now, I can't believe I George really, Washington would really do that. I would really like 
to have our Senate say something similar today. Yeah. Instead of, you know, he's a good man, he's this, it's like, what? Well, no, he's I'm a crazy alcoholic. People who should not be in the country's highest positions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would like to see that kind of courage today. But so this left Mr. Rutledge with the very curious distinction of having the fastest Senate rejection of a nominee to the Supreme Court and the only recess appointment to be outright rejected, yet was still both associate and chief justice yeah. of the Supreme Court. Oh, he hit all the all the things there. You know, and when they told him he had to go, you think he like tried to sneak the robe and gavel with him like Oh yeah, Mr. Rutledge, we're gonna need that back, please. That's not yours. Security. Security. Yeah, security. <laughs> He's like, I would rather die. <laughs> I would rather die than give this gamble back. I would rather the president die than give this gamble back. <laughs> oh my well, word. What's next, you ask me, Karen? There's there's no telling at this point. <laughs> So how can Supreme Court nominees get confirmed in such a polarized political climate? Historically, even candidates facing a hostile Senate have been able to kind of make it work there. And since 1955, even when the Senate is in the hands of the opposition party, nominees have generally been easily confirmed. There's three keys to this, Karen. Listen closely, because one day you might be president and nominating a Supreme Court justice. And these are the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, I want you to listen to this so right. you pick right. First of all, don't pick me. I'll never get through um, because I may have tried marijuana once. Okay. Also, so. <clears throat> the colonel. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. Yeah, we, that, we can't delete all that stuff. But three keys. You have to be perceived. You don't have to be highly qualified. You just have to be perceived to be highly qualified. <laughs> That's how I live my life right I, there. You know what? That's what I was going to say. I make a living on being perceived as competent. That's yeah. um, <laughs> my bread and butter, baby. Yeah. It's, <laughs> perception is everything. Number two, be perceived to be moderate in your views. So that I, I think I like to be, I'm perceived as fairly moderate in my views. And... Their confirmation has to be seen as unlikely to have a significant impact on the ideological balance on the court. So it's those three things. And really with Kavanaugh, um, I think you just have one of the three. Um, he's perceived to be highly qualified. Um, nobody's going to say he's a moderate at all. Well, not really a moderate, but there wasn't anything particularly radical in his opinions. Now, I mean... In the footnotes of his opinions, whatever you perceive to be there is a little bit different, but um, yeah, still, but, he doesn't really meet these keys. Okay, in sure. your opinion, this is just your opinion here, though. If if McConnell hasn't gone to the nuclear option, right, and you need 60 votes or whatever to break a filibuster, and that's a reason for the filibuster, you know, that you needed to get a supermajority for a Supreme Court justice— um, to break a filibuster anyway, is that you would uh, that Supreme Court justices would always have to be somewhat of a consensus pick. And I'm not sure that Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, either of them get through without just a having to get a simple majority. 
Now, in saying that, please don't send me letters or emails or messages saying you always just needed a simple majority. I understand that. Well, are you asking but me a question or are you telling I'm me getting something? to the question, but okay. I, somebody's going to say it's always been a simple majority. And I do know that. But you've needed a super majority to break a filibuster mm -hmm. you don't need that anymore on a supreme court justice since the weasel mitch mcconnell did away with it um so it meant that you had to get consensus picks so my my question to you is do you believe that in this climate today that gorsuch or kavanaugh would be considered consensus picks that could get passed that could get voted in without significant democratic support do you think they would get in considering the political climate today or if it was a decade today ago? today no right no i don't either right and but it, i think a decade ago yes i mean i think that we've gotten well it's interesting because nobody considered um john roberts you right. know they considered nobody considered him a moderate. They knew he was going to be a conservative. Right. But he's ended up. And he got through. Mm -hmm. He has. And and political and Supreme Court judges tend to, I think, moderate as a as a rule, not. Right. You know, because Scalia the gravity of their jobs, you know, right, they, they do tend to moderate. Mm -hmm. Right. But I don't think I don't think in today's climate, if you had not done away, you know, gone with the nuclear option, I don't believe that. Kavanaugh or um, Gorsuch would have been would have gotten through. I think that's a fair but that's, estimation. That's my opinion. Well, I think it's a really good idea if nominations follow that recipe um, to be highly qualified, fairly moderate in their views. Um, I do think it's okay to swing one way or the other a little bit, but um, but nothing radical and that that they don't have a significant impact um, on the balance. I, I think that that's, those are, those, it's a good guideline to go by. So well, it's interesting because Ruth, Ruth, my girl, Ruth, she was considered a radical when she was put on the bench and you know, the Republicans didn't stop her. Right. Well, she was obviously a fantastic legal mind and you know, she has criticized some of the more popular, liberal decisions i mean she does base right. things on law and just her she just had a different interpretation of um the constitution well, on well and as we mentioned in other podcasts she was she was very critical of how roe v wade was decided. came about mm -hmm. that's that's correct so i i think if we would follow that we would not be embroiled in all the political theater that we see today. Cause really that's all the confirmation hearings are, are a backdrop to political theater. Uh, they are. And although I'm going to give props to your boy, Ben, because if there was political theater, he, I mean, he lit it up in yeah, those confirmation. He had hearings. a mic drop moment. He had the he, true Spartacus moment, man. He was, he did. He really did. He gave and, me goosebumps, I, but it doesn't take much from Ben Sass to give me goosebumps. Yeah, you're pretty shameless when it comes to him. But he's, you know, he's one of those guys that you just, you just want more of. Even if you oh, are yeah, on the left, he's one of those. <laughs> easy. He's definitely, um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You know okay. what he is? He's an honorable person. Right. He's an honorable and humble person. Right. And, and he might be conservative. I might not agree with probably 60% of the things that he believes in. Mm -hmm. But I would, 
Here's a weird thing I have with politicians, and I've, sh- I've shared this with you before. I look at guys like Ben Sass, and I think if something happened to me, you know, and if I had little kids, if something happened to me, would I want this guy raising my children? Right. You know, and when you look at Ben Sass, you have to think. Yeah, this is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to think he's, well, he's a conservative, but yeah, I would not mind. Right. I would be okay with him raising yeah, my children. Yeah, I feel that way about Biden. I mean, I think yeah. that I, there's, it's just, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily specifically want Biden raising my daughter because he's a little creepy, but not that he would actually do anything. He's just a close talker. <laughs> well, no, you wouldn't mind him raising your daughter. You just wouldn't want to sit next to him at a dinner. You <laughs> yeah. yourself. Your daughter would be fine. You might not be hug, so He would good. hug her a tad bit long. But, I mean, yeah. right. It's just whether or not you think they're good people. And um, right. that you just get that feeling about them. And I know exactly what you mean. Well, for now, we have said a lot. But that <laughs> is all we have to say about that. Yes. We really, really want to thank everybody who takes time out of their day and what they're doing to listen to us ramble on. And you can find us on all the main platforms like Podbean and iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. If you like us, it would really mean the world for us to you, for you to just leave us a positive review there or on our Facebook page. Uh, we also would really appreciate if you would share our show on social media. And we want to give a shout out and thanks to Alicia and Ben because they... They share the show so often, and we really appreciate it. And if there's anybody else out there who's doing it and we haven't seen it, props to you, too. Thank you so much. And any yeah, any word of mouth that you give? Because I had someone, I had someone at work, uh, somebody that works for the state that I don't know very well, and walked past me the other day and said, hey, I listen to your podcast. I really like it. And he's a very, very conservative person. So it's awesome. Yeah, it was it was kind of cool to yeah. hear that. So, now speaking of our Facebook page, you can come and join our conversations at the Rants and Reason Podcast Group page on Facebook, and we have some really really great moderators there. They keep things civil, they keep things under control, right? And they're pretty so thank you. fabulous people in general. So, they really are. Although we have Stephen who opened up his finger this week so we need him to be more careful so he doesn't um we don't lose him as a moderator oh yeah because he's got to be able to type he does he does okay well you can always find us on twitter at rants reason and on instagram as rants and reason and if you appreciate what we have to say and you would like to support us and we deeply deeply appreciate our patreon supporters um you can find us on patreon as rants and reason and we do appreciate all of our patreon sponsors but we did forget to cut and paste the list this week yeah karen did not put the list on here i usually (laughs) do that I, i would name everybody but i'm afraid i might miss one so we appreciate all of you and you're fantastic and we couldn't do this without you so we very much appreciate you thank you Thank you very much. I am going to just sit here now, mm-hmm. and Karen is going to regale you with a story of unlikely friends. No, this so was a can short you, one. Can you give me a moment so I can get comfortable in my chair while you tell me a story? You know, why should I do that for you? Because you're a better person than Aww. I am, Karen. All right. Well, well, we mentioned it before, 
and most of us already know of the epic friendship between the adversarial justices Ginsburg and Scalia. The two justices attended operas together, they traveled together, and they dined with each other's families. But Slate reporter Mark Joseph Stern predicts that there may be another frenemy situation looming on the horizon. A budding friendship is happening between Justices Elena Kagan and Samuel Alito. The Supreme Court seating chart requires the two to sit next to each other. And like plenty of SCOTUS seatmates before them, the justices often whisper to each other when lawyers at the lectern will prattle on and on and on. But their conversations are clearly much more than idle chatter. In fact, they seem to delight in making each other laugh. During one particular argument, Kagan made Alito crack up so hard that he covered his mouth with his hand. Both justices like to chat, and they both love to argue. I mean, isn't that kind of a like prerequisite for being an attorney and yeah, then a justice? A Just yeah. When Kagan and Alito engage with attorneys at arguments, they sometimes wind up debating one another. So justices aren't actually supposed to argue with each other. So these two would frequently shadow box through counsel. One example occurred during arguments in King versus Burwell. After Kagan unspooled a lengthy hypothetical in an effort to catch the plaintiff's lawyer in an inconsistency, Alito co-opted the question and he turned it into a softball. When the attorney answered to Alito's satisfaction, Kagan deadpanned, he's good, Justice Alito. <laughs> Both had made their points through counsel, but Kagan got in the last word. If you hijack my question, Sam, I will mock you. I will mock you. Okay. I will mock you. It's too soon to tell whether Kagan and Alito's delightfully spirited debates will blossom into something similar to Ginsburg and Scalia, but it's obvious the two plainly enjoy locking horns, and that's a sign that they respect and even admire each other's intellectual firepower. Their jousting draws out subtle nuances in the law and highlights the stakes in each case, and as each justice gains seniority... The opportunity for both to write opinions will only grow, and likely the friendship will too. So, they're opponents on the bench, yet they appreciate and delight in the personality of the other. If they can do it, we can too. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.